Almost repelled and touched it as nearly as the door. But, but it's not here yet. Soon we must return to our homes and continue the Christian battle we're all up against. You know, I'm not a prophet or anything, but I'd have to say that there are some among us here and some among us at all the feast sites that will not be here next year for whatever reason. Brethren, don't let Satan make you be a spiritual dropout. Could you or could I drop out, be consumed by the world, by, by the devil, by our own human nature? Absolutely. When he that stands, take heed lest he fall. I'm only going to ask you to turn to a couple of scriptures today. First one will be in Second Timothy 3. Second Timothy 3. And getting back to my idea there, um, many thousands of people have fallen from the truth over the years. I've personally known hundreds of them. Heard their stories. Some went somewhere else. Some were just burned out. Wanted nothing to do with uh, the truth any, any longer. The Second Timothy 3 has a, a litany here of, of things that will happen in the last days. Verse 1, This know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come, terrible times, dangerous times, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Boy, we should say that, don't we? Look out for number one. In fact, I was in a restaurant a while back, and I saw a couple of people on a date, young people, and they both had their little electronic gizmos, and they were paying attention to that, and ignoring one another. So people will be lovers of their own selves. Covetous. Posters, proud, blasphemers, oh, that's a big one. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. There's plenty of unnatural affection out there. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of, of God, having a form of godliness but denying the, the power thereof. From such, turn away. And verse 7, ever learning and never, uh, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that, that's our society today, isn't it? We see it all over. We see it in the media. We see, we see it in our neighbors. Sometimes we see it in ourselves. Well, today, uh, today I want to uh, address the issue of our spiritual warfare. Our spiritual warfare. That's my title. And we, we are all in a spiritual warfare. We are Christian soldiers, and some of us may, may fall in the, in, in the battle. But we're going to win the battle nonetheless. First Timothy, uh, first Timothy uh, 5 8 says, The devil. As a roaring lion is going around seeking who he, whom he might devour. That's you and me. He wants you. Back in Matthew 24, 24, it says, For there shall, there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, miracles, if you will. You might see some, some apparently dead people brought to life. You, you might see someone calling fire down out of heaven. And unless people are really rooted in the Word, 
who they see of them. Both prophets and both Christ have shown great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect, the very chosen ones. Brethren, I tell you this without hesitation. The time is coming when you either believe what you see and what you hear or you believe this book. Make up your mind now which, which way you're going to go. Will you believe what you see and hear by false prophets, false ministers, or will you believe God's word? You know, Satan has uh, two primary tools. There's uh, distraction and, distra and uh, de deception. Distraction and deception. There's so many distractions out there in the world. Uh, I mean, there's drugs and there's movies and uh, so many activities. Uh, your little electronic device and so many distractions. We don't have time to study and pray as we should do. But you know, when it's all said and done, said and done, pardon me, you know there's only two religions in the world? Only two. One is God's truth, as revealed by God through his word of the Bible. The other one is every, everything else, every other belief. And these two cannot be mixed without disastrous results. Sometimes Satan, the devil, will give someone just enough truth so he can study his own religion. And that's a false religion. You know, my father used to have a saying. He said that any old dead fish can float down, downstream with everybody else, but it takes a live one to swim against the current to show some energy and, and drive and, and go, go what, what he's going for. Well, before you were called, before God put his spirit life within you by the Holy Spirit, we were all dead fish floating down the stream of society, weren't we? But now that God has put his life in us, we, uh, we're fighting that Christian battle. And uh, there's a threefold current that we're swimming against. We're talking about uh, the, what the Bible calls the flesh, the flesh, the world, and Satan, the devil, and his minions. Let's check out these three, uh, three uh, spirit enemies. The first enemy is what the Bible calls the flesh. Really, that means just our own carnal human nature. Our own carnal human nature. We all have it. We all have an abundance of it. Romans 8 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, God's enemy, because uh, you know, <laughs> the carnal mind is enmity against God, and to not something to the law of God, Neither do you can be. The domain, the territory is your mind. If you have a mind too, you can be attracted to the world and all its sins, all its fun. You know, Satan always gives a, a benefit for every sin he wants you to commit. It looks good, it tastes good, it feels good. Uh, some, some benefit. And it, we're all attracted by that. We see, we want, we covet. We do everything we can to achieve what we want. It might be money, it might be uh, a 
position uh, of, of no authority. It might be sex. It might be. Uh, it could be almost anything. There's so many things out here that distract us, distract us from God's word, and we don't have enough time to study and pray as we ought to do. The second enemy we have is uh, the, the influence of the world. Galatians 1.4 calls it this present evil world. Not evil because God made it evil, but because of men's sins and turned them into a, a cesspool of, of evil. And in uh, 3.20, we're told that the world loves darkness rather than light. And, and it's uh, governed by the, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. And we all lust after things. Uh, unlawful lust is uh, uh, to, to maneuver for things we shouldn't have. Our inordinate lust will often turn into a form of idolatry. I have to have that. I have to have him. I have to have her. I have to have that job. I have to have whatever it might be. And it turns into an idol. We're not careful. We're told in First uh, John two fifteen, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, whoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The world today, no, I'm sorry, the religion of today. Get alongism. Get alongism. Ecumenicalism. All these churches out here, I shouldn't say all, but most of them out there in, in Protestant land, they're giving up their doctrines. They're giving up their doctrines for love. Just give your hearts to the Lord and love, love, love. We're all getting along together. Don't discuss doctrine. Don't discuss deep things. Just have a good time. We'll all love one another. That's the, the religion of, of getting along in him, what I call it. Turn to, uh, turn to Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9. I'm already there. Don't you hate it when somebody tells you to turn somewhere, you start reading right away, and you don't even have your Bible open? Proverbs 28.9 is a, a verse that we, we should commit to memory. We don't hear it addressed very often. It says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, can become an abomination. And that, that's a frightful thought. Think about that. Those people out there, the no-law people, the antinomian people, uh, law has run away, uh, God says, even their prayer is an abomination. Every time they deny God's law and they say, oh, let's just love one another, never mind doctrine, to God, that's, a, that's a, an abomination, something he hates. And remember Proverbs 28.9. The third enemy we have is, is the devil himself and all his minions, all his false ministers. There's a lot of them out there. You realize that if you do the, do the, do, if you do the arithmetic, there are more demons on the planet than there are people. There's only roughly 7 billion people. There are many more demons. Maybe that's why some have, have a, uh, uh, how's that worded? Uh, 
a legion of demons going to gang up on some people. Satan and the devil is literally the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 4. Pride was his downfall. And he was a spiritual father before he was begotten by God's Spirit. And now, he wants him back. Jesus called the devil uh, a thief who comes to, to steal, to kill, to destroy. I'm reminding them some. Uh, Countries over there in the Middle East, they're not building things, they're not helping, they're not saving society. They're, they're stealing, they're killing, they're destroying every place they go. That's the work of the devil. That's his attitude. The way to overcome Satan and his, his subordinates is to make sure you're outfitted with the spiritual armor of God. Become intimately familiar with it, sleep in it, eat it. Eat, and eat with it. Never, never take uh, your hand off God's word. Fuse it to your hand. I'm reminded of a story about a young Christian man. He uh, got his all his spiritual armor on, you know, and he walked out there to a post, you know, and he looked high, high and wide. He, he didn't see anybody out there, no, no enemies. And he stood there and he stood there, and the sun came out and began to perspire. It became very unbearably hot. And he got to thinking, he said, you know these, these shoes uh, shod with the preparation of the gospel? They're so heavy, they, they drag me down. I think I'll take them off. If I need them, I can put them right back on. And, and it's one cause of truth is, is cumbersome. I think I'll have to take it off and set it aside and sit down for a while. And this breastplate of righteousness is cumbersome, it's hot. I, I can take that off. There's no enemies around here. I look. So I took that off. And he said, this, this sword of the spirit, I've sharpened it in the past. I don't need to resharpen it. I, it. It's heavy. I'll lay that down. And he said, and this, this helmet of salvation is so heavy. Just then, we heard a twang of a bow like between the shoulder blades. The enemy, the, ro the roaring lion, got him. When you guard us down, his is up. When you guard us down, Satan will attack. Be ready for it. You know, getting back to uh, what, what I was saying about God's law being scorned, I had one of my sons call me on the phone. I was in the hospital on morphine. And uh, he called up and talked about an hour. Hi, Dad, how you doing? Fine, you know, I'm doing okay. And uh, asked him if I'm still going to that church. And he said, well, you, you know, God's law has gone away. I said, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Christ is the end of the law. He nailed it to the cross. We're under a new covenant now. And, you know, a thought come to my mind. If you're driving your car down the road, for example, you come to a stop sign. And you stop. You fulfilled that law. You've obeyed that law, haven't you? When you drive on, does somebody come along behind you and pull up the stop sign and throw it away? No. Same way with God's laws. You keep his laws, but that doesn't annul them. Christ fulfilled the law, but he didn't do away with the law.
Romans 3.18 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the more we fear God, the less we sin. There again, people say that, well, they redefine uh, fear. Well, fear of God, that means you've got a, a healthy respect for God. You don't actually fear him, you're not afraid of him. I remember a few times, I was afraid of my dad when he came after me with a paddle. But um, people have no fear of God today. And, and, and uh, at Mount Sinai, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he shook the mountain and the smoke, and those, fear were, those people were fearful. Moses himself said, I, I fear and quake exceedingly. When he comes again, when Christ comes again, he's going to shake the earth, and people are going to fall down on their knees and cry out in fear. A healthy respect is there, but it goes a lot deeper than that, much deeper than that. So we ask the question, why fear God? I mean, God is all loving. God, God wouldn't hurt anybody, would he? So why fear God anyway? You know that God sometimes kills people? Right. Sometimes God kills people. Uh, Matthew uh, 10, 28 says, And fear not him which can kill the body, but not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul, that means life, and body as you have a fire. Well, I, I remember uh, back in uh, Genesis 38, 9, and 10, God killed a man named uh, Onan for violating a commandment about sex. God laid down fire and brimstone on, 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 God, on Sodom and Gomorrah. God killed Korah and his band for rebelling against, against Moses. Uh, God killed Uzzah for merely touching the earth with good intentions. In a parable, God took the life of, of another man for being greedy in Luke 12. God killed the husband and the wife. Uh, and Ananias and Sapphira for lying. In Noah's time, God killed everybody but eight people. Killed everybody but eight during the flood. And get this, think about this. One of the first things Christ is going to do when he comes again is to kill billions of people through the plagues, the trumpets, or some of the last plagues, the trumpets, and the seals. Some people estimate there might only be a, a, a tithe of people left alive at Christ's literal return. So, let me go back to um, Ephesians 6. We know that chapter well, about the Christian armor. And I want to bring out a certain word that uh, it, has, it has. Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole, not part, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so on. Then down in verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole, not part, armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done so, to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore having the loins covered with the different pieces of armor and so on. So brethren, 
What we need to do today is to take a stand. Not be cowardly, not be bashful, not be apologetic. Take a stand with God's truth. Take a stand for, for God's word. Take a stand with God's holy days and family. All these things. Stand up. Don't be afraid. Let God's spirit speak through you. And but when, you know, we're never really alone, are we? Even if people turn their back on us, our family, our friends, old acquaintances, we're never really alone. And Jesus Christ said, I, I, I will not leave you comfortless. I'll send you the comforter. I'll never leave or forsake you. He said, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. So, brethren, thank God for his truth, for his mercy, for his love. And while you're at it, have a great feast. We do have a bit of an update from uh, Pastor Adria. Um, they are still in the hospital, and they have ordered a CAT scan for Jennifer around 12:30. So uh, you can continue to uh, keep them in your prayers, and we will keep you updated as we uh, get more information. Please uh, take your hymnals and rise after that sermonette. Turn your hymn books to page 126. Page 126. We will sing, "In My Heart There Rings a Melody." have a piece of special music that will precede the main message of the day.
The main message of the day will be brought to us by one of our traveling uh, pastors, Pastor John Reedy, who will be uh, bidding us uh, farewell today after after the service. He's in for a bit of a long uh, travel out to Osoyos, B.C., uh, probably one or two flights at least, I would think, and uh, two flights and and, uh, three flights, three flights and some driving. Uh, And then he's got to find his way from Osoyos back to Texas at some point. He might just want to drive. We do uh, thank you for taking the time out of your, your uh, uh, away from your family to be with us here, and we're certainly uh, blessed to have had you here and ask you to uh, take the love of our community out to the, the brethren in BC. Before we get to uh, Pastor Reedy's sermon, which will be entitled Faith of Our Fathers, we do have an opportunity to hear a piece of uh, special music sung brought to us by Sister Bonita. She will be singing a song entitled He, and then after that, John Reedy with the sermon.
Good morning once again. It has certainly been a delight to be here with all of you. I have thoroughly enjoyed being here and having a chance to meet many of you and uh, renew some old acquaintances. I uh, will be more than happy to take your spirit with me out to the Soyuz. Um, you certainly know how to sing. That's, that's great. I, I just, you know, every time you go to some of these groups, there are those that uh, are more subtle and, and don't really, you know, give it all they've got, but here you really give it all you've got, and that, that really sets the tone for the sermons, for the sermonettes, and everything that's going on. But I have thoroughly enjoyed it here, and uh, maybe I'll have a chance to come back again next year. Uh, I, I still would love to get to Toronto and speak one of these days. Uh, I've spent so much time up there, but I have, have enjoyed it very, very much. There are a lot of topics a lot of subjects that people believe in that have very few facts. And when you run across those people, there's no way you're going to change your mind about things. Now, the people believe in all sorts of things, from aliens to probably the biggest one these days is global warming, to conspiracies. Uh, probably the biggest conspiracies was the assassination of John Kennedy, and then the 9-11 conspiracy that's out there. I'm very familiar with conspiracies. My dad was an expert in them. He studied them from 1967 until he died in 2007, and it was one of the reasons we were never very close because even though I knew there are things out there, I didn't want to get mixed up with it because I had other things to do, and it made him mad. <clears throat> but you name it, I've heard about it. And there, are, there is nothing that I have not heard when it comes to conspiracies. There are those that question the belief in God. There are those that believe, you know, whether his written word is his written word or not. A lot of, there are those that look at it as just a, a book of literature, nice writings. If you look at the Harris Poll, you'll find that 36% of people believe in UFOs. 24%, I thought this was a little bit high, 24% believe in reincarnation. I would not have thought it to be that high. 42% believe in ghosts. 29% believe in astrology. And a lot of these people base their lives on these things. And to have a discussion with them is kind of fruitless. You know, they're stuck on it. They believe it. That's what we call they have faith in something with very few facts. The dictionary defines faith as an unquestioning belief, complete trust, or confidence. And that's what it is. But we need to understand a few things about faith in relationship to Christianity and God and, and His Word. You know, one of the most important tools that we need to have in the days that we live in today, the perilous times that were talked about, and they are very perilous. If you watch the news, you know, every day I've been watching the last couple mornings and ISIS is on the on the move. Um, they're getting ready, getting very, very close to Baghdad, and we, we don't know where this is going to wind up. Uh, we, <clears throat> we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. And so faith is very important. It's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's an element of our Christianity that is very, very important. And there, there are going to be people ask you, why do you need to talk about faith? Why do you need to have faith? Could you explain that to somebody who's just coming into the church or 
somebody that you cross paths with that maybe does not even attend church anywhere and doesn't understand much about faith. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, that does happen. We do need to understand about faith. We do need to understand what it involves. And three of the things we're going to talk about in this sermon today is what is faith, why is it important, and how is faith developed? Because it's something that needs to be a foundation of our Christianity. <clears throat> how strong is our faith today? By that, how strong is it compared to our fathers? And by fathers, I mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, they didn't have the written, Abraham didn't have the written word of God. He didn't have any of the Old Testament, but he had faith. You know, it's hard to kind of draw an analogy between what we have today and what they didn't have, and yet Abraham is looked upon as being what? The father of the faithful. So we're going we're to compare that in a few minutes and see if we can put it in perspective today with you and with me and with how that would have come about. The people in the New Testament during the time of Christ and right after his death didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. So how does our faith compare with theirs? They had some other things that was very important that helped them to have faith, as we're going to see. We understand, to be more specific, far more than the prophets, than Abraham, than even the New Testament church. We really do. We understand far more for the fact we have God's Spirit, but we have the Old and New Testament, and we can see the correlation between them and the, the linking together of some of those scriptures with what they mean. So is our faith stronger? Is it weaker? Or just as strong? Can't have any help. You've got to answer that yourself. Nobody else can help you answer that question. Well, these are just some of the things we're going to look at today. Over in the book of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus was reciting a parable to the people he was talking to. And one of the statements he says in verse 8 of Luke 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Good question, isn't it? I think a lot of this is probably due to the times in which we live. We live in a push-button society. We want something. We push a button. We flip a switch. It happens. We don't have to think about it. Become It's like breathing and heart, your heartbeat. It just happens. It, it's automatic. And I, I, now no wonder people would not have faith in this time because because everything is instantaneous. I mean, I can get on a plane in Detroit. I'm going to fly to Toronto, fly to Vancouver, and then fly to Kelowna, and then drive down to a Soyuz. It'll take the better part of a day. But I can basically cross the whole continent of Canada and the width of the United States in one day. And we wonder why we need faith. When we, when we can do things so quickly and we expect things so quickly, we expect God to answer us quickly. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is God is not just not too concerned with our comfort in many cases. 
He takes his time in doing things. And uh, the analogy I got, I think you'll find, is, is, is interesting. But, you know, what, what, was, what was it like for Abraham when God said, pick up your things and go? We don't think too much about it. Sure, he was out in the desert. <clears throat> but what do you need if you live in the desert? Well, you need some water, first of all, very quickly. And you're going to need clothing and some kind of shelter to protect you from the heat. You know the story of Abraham. Um, God said, pick up your things and go, and he did. And he didn't have the Tim Hortons and the little you know, shops along the way for the gas stations you could stop every few miles. Um, just the open expanse of the desert with nothing. Abraham apparently didn't bat an eye. He just picked up and went. Well, we have to do the same thing in the society and in the times that we live in today. We're so used to that quickness, but we have to have faith in God. Second Peter chapter 3. One of the things that really confuses people when it comes to faith, even more so than flipping the switch and expecting it to happen immediately, is God's silence. How many people have you talked to just in, in passing or discussing things in the world that are happening today with the war, the Middle East, and the problems, and Israel, and everything involved. And that friend of yours says, if God would just do something, we could believe it. Really, is that going to make a difference? I mean, as we're going to see what God has done through the centuries, through the millennia, what God did, did it make that much of a difference? No, it really didn't. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, The second epistle, beloved, I write unto you, in both which I stir up your minds by the way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and our Savior. Knowing this, that in the last days there shall come scoffers walking after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they did, just like the beginning from creation. And he says in verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant of. And they, they are. People are ignorant of God's word. People are ignorant of what God says he's going to do. And they definitely don't have the faith to know that it's going to happen sooner or later. I don't know why people predict even come close to predicting why, why and when Christ might return. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, there was an older gentleman, I think he died here recently, but he had predicted a couple times when it was going to happen, didn't happen. And um, so be it. But, but there's going, there are going to be more. There's going to be someone who's going to claim it's going to happen. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, do we have 25 years left? The way things are going now, I don't think so. There are too many crazy people out there ready to push a button and are definitely determined to have, you know, the, the downfall of the United States. But it could go on longer. Nevertheless, because God is silent, things continue as they were, and people go about their business and don't worry about things. Question number one, why is faith important? And if you will, turn over. To chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, there's one verse 
that tells why it's important. You may even have memorized it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. That's pretty simple. You've got to have faith, otherwise it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that He is, that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Did you notice what's contained in this scripture? There are three elements here, three keys of what your faith must be like. And if you're trying to explain to someone what faith is, you know, you have that opportunity to do that and to kind of bring them along a little bit. The three things it involves are, first of all, it says, for he that comes to God must believe that he is. There's a recognition of who God is. There is a little bit of knowledge about who God is. Secondly, it says that he is a rewarder. Now, God does reward the elect, the saints, Christians. The book of Revelation is full of that, as well as the other books. But when he comes, he's going to bring his reward with him, and he will reward people. But the third point, the third key, is that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So is... We're going to find out, is faith just a matter of believing and going about your business and forgetting everything that's in this word? My Bible says in several places that the Christian, the elect, the saints need to diligently seek the God of heaven. And I think that's a sermon in itself. Most of you know where we're headed with that. But there's a need to do certain things, as we're going to see. Over in the book of Deuteronomy, I want to just touch on a group of people that you're familiar with and that had a little bit of a problem and when you stop and read about it and sit there and think about them, you wonder how in the world could this group have had such a problem and had so little faith. But they did. And God was very displeased with them. Deuteronomy 32 talks about in verse 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. It's about the calling of Israel, about our fathers, Isaac and Jacob, Abraham, how that he found him in a desert, verse 10, in a, in a waste, howling wilderness, led him about and instructed him. He was the apple of his eye, verse 12, the Lord led them. Verse 13, he made him ride the high places of the earth. And in verse 16, it says they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. Why on earth would a people, and you know the history of Israel, you know coming out of Egypt, the Exodus, you know what these people experienced and witnessed and saw with their eyes and heard it and felt it. The fathers... And the elders telling the passing generations what had occurred, what had taken place. And obviously some of them were still alive. You know, only two of them entered the promised land for their disobedience. They were, you know, walking the wilderness for 40 years because, as he says here in verse 20, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very forward children, a forward generation, 
children in whom is no faith. That's hard to imagine. That that this group, this people, with, with everything they had seen, and that was part of the problem with their faith. They only had faith with what they had witnessed and what they had seen. As long as God was doing these things, they had faith. They believed in Him. But lo and behold, if God didn't do something for a couple of weeks, these people lost faith. They wanted to live in a push-button society with God. It, it didn't happen that way. And God tested them. God worked with them. They had to see it before they could believe it. They had God's presence. They had God's miracles. They had the prophets down through history. And then what did God do to them? God gave them silence. God gave them silence. And so after the captivity, after coming back from the, the uh, exodus and the exile to, build, to rebuild the temple, what was it the people had? They had faith in God's word. And that, that even became a problem, as we're going to see Christ pointed out to them. You know, faith in the law is not where it's going to bring you salvation. Faith in the law is not what is important. It's faith in God the Creator. Jesus had to point that out to them. And they killed Him for it. That's how much faith they had in their own law. They felt that they knew it. And yet what did the law talk about? The whole law talked about Christ. They still missed it. If you would go back to Second Peter, I should have had you put a marker there. I'll try not to have you jumping all over the place too much. But it talks about in Second Peter in the last part of chapter 3 what type of person through all of this and the times in which we live that we should be. He says here in chapter 3, as we mentioned, you know, they were going to scoff at his return and the end time. And he says in verse 11, Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons you ought to be in all holy conduct and godliness? So what type of person should we be knowing that all these things are going to come to pass? That there is going to be those type of people questioning God, questioning what's going to happen, probably laughing at you because you believe it and laughing at me because I believe it because God's silence is not a very encouraging factor to a lot of people when God doesn't do anything. But we know it's going to happen because we have a history and a record of prophecy of things that have been fulfilled and have taken place. So what type of person should we be? Verse 14. Let's go to start in verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, brother, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, does that sound like <clears throat> believing in God and going your own direction and forgetting everything else because Christ did it for us? Not what I see, but that's what people are going to tell you. That, as was mentioned in the sermonette, we're under a new covenant. We don't need to do anything. Christ did it. Well, we're under a new covenant. That's true. <laughs> but we've got a lot more to do than what they did in the Old Testament. 
Over here in the book of John, you don't need to turn there. Do you remember when Thomas came to Christ after the crucifixion and said that and he didn't believe Christ that had been resurrected? And he said, I, I can't believe it. I've got to touch the nail holes in your palms. I've got to touch you and to see and to make sure that you really are, are who you say you are. And then he touched him, fell down on his knees and said, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And you and I are those blessed ones that believe because we haven't seen a lot of things. Now you may have experienced a miracle here and there occasionally with somebody where they were anointed and literally immediately they were healed. That has taken place occasionally. You can't prove that to anybody, but you know I don't have to prove it. We know where it came from. Uh, it happened to me once with a child I anointed about 15 years ago in in Florida. Um, very serious, very, very serious problem with a little boy that was about five years old. And they called me and I anointed him. And about an hour or two later, the grandfather called back and said, he's completely healed. I mean, it was wonderful. Now, People are going to say, well, you know, he just was sick. He got over it. It's no big deal. Fine. Believe how whatever you want. But you and I know better. You and I know where that healing comes from. It comes from the God in heaven. And every now and then, he gives us a little encouragement with these things. But you and I don't see what the nation of Israel saw. We don't have the miracles that we saw there. We didn't have the chance to touch the nail holes in Christ's hand as after he was resurrected, and appeared to many. But you and I believe, and you and I have just as much faith. It's just as strong, if not a little stronger, because of what we understand and what we know and because of what that Holy Spirit has helped us to come to see and understand. You and I are blessed because we believe and we have not seen. What is faith? We understand why it's necessary. But what is faith? Go back to Hebrews 11. You know the scripture, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You believe in something, but you don't have to see it. And there's no question on your mind. You know, I heard a couple of weeks ago, it's been, well, it's been a little longer than that, they brought it up again, but you remember the lady that was uh, they were talking about how strong the faith is of people in the Middle East that are Christians now and facing being killed by ISIS because of their beliefs. The lady that was pregnant, and I think it was from Sudan, where she was going to be killed, and then they decided, well, no, they were going to let her have her baby, and then they would kill her. Uh, and then I think she had her baby, and she got out and came, actually came back to the, to the States. Um, but there has been case after case after case where these people over there have been threatened and don't even think about giving up their life. I think Mike Huckabee had talked about it on his show one night, and a couple other ministers had mentioned, you know, the, the strength of the faith of these Islamic people in the Middle East who have turned to Christianity. That's really something to think about. You know, we, I went to Israel two and a half years ago, and one of the things that was surprising to us, we were with a group of mostly Baptists, and I uh, spent a little over a week there, and the bus would go and stop at different places to see things. 
And of all the, the people that were there on other buses, you couldn't believe the number of South Koreans. I was just surprised. My wife was too. And it was, you know, there would be one load of, of Baptist or another Christian group, and there would be two or three bus loads of South Koreans. And, um, you know, I've heard over the years that some of the strongest and quickest growing Christianity countries in the world are China and South Korea. That's where the growth is taking place. Because we're not getting a whole lot of growth. I mean, we're just not getting a lot of growth over here in, in the United States and probably Canada. Mostly, as far as the churches of God, we just see people shuffling from group to group, which is, which is fine. I'm glad we can do that. But wouldn't it be nice to have, you know, 20 or 25 or 30 brand new people here for the first time? It's always good to see people here for the first time. Let's talk about faith, believing without having to see. You know the story of Abraham. We mentioned that. You want to put it in perspective today? Okay. God tells you to get up from the chair you're sitting in. Don't take anything with you but the clothes on your back and walk 300 miles to the north and he'll be with you. Now granted, you're not in the desert. We're not in the desert. But what's 300 miles north of here? Well, it's going to get pretty cold very, very quick. Uh, you're going to have water to drink. A lot of wild animals that you could kill for food, but and they might decide your food too. So if you want to put it in perspective, that's basically what it is. God says, get up. Walk 300 miles to the north, and I'll be with you. And you don't have anything else to take with you. Is your faith strong enough to do that? I think it probably is, but it puts it in perspective, doesn't it, as to what Abraham went through. Because you're going to be alone, and you would have to be totally dependent on God, and you would have to know that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And you know as well as I do, God usually does what he said he's going to do. Now, he, you might be uncomfortable. You might be cold. You might be hungry. You know, God is, is sometimes, like I said, not too concerned about our comfort zone. But what do we need to survive in, in life? Food, clothing, and shelter. You know, we don't need a Toyota or a Cadillac. We don't need to go to Outback or um, some of the other wonderful restaurants to survive. We don't need to be wearing designer clothes to survive. Um, I mean, you could cut a piece of a tarp up like uh, Sylvester Stallone did in Rambo and put it around your shoulders for, you know, warmth. But God would be with you if he said he's going to do it. And that's what faith is. I want to read a little bit of an article, just a few sentences here and there. This article is entitled, and it has to do with God's word. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but, you know, Second Timothy chapter 3, it says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God as profitable doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. You know that Scripture, and you believe that Scripture, that this is the Word of God. You believe it, and I believe it, but a lot of people don't. This article is entitled, The Bible Has One Theme, and That's a Miracle. It's by Rick Warren, who wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. He's a minister. And I'm just going to hit the highlights of it because it's interesting. It kind of puts it in perspective. Only God could have put the Bible together. It's 66 books written over 1,600 years by 40 authors, and it has one theme. 
The Bible is all about God redeeming man, and Jesus is the star. The Bible, on the other hand, was written by 40 different people at every age and in every stage of life on three continents, prophets, poets, princes, kings, sailors, and soldiers, all had the same story. Some were written in homes, some in prisons, others on ships. Quite a diverse group of authors. The New Testament, a lot of people think, is about Jesus, and the Old Testament is about Israel, but that's not true. <clears throat> the Bible says in Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that didn't even include the New Testament because it wasn't written. The pictures, the metaphors, the analogies, and the allusions from beginning to end are about God's plan to redeem people and build a family for eternity. It all began with Jesus, and you can see him in every book. And I added something to the end of that and the holy days that you and I have the privilege to understand that he is in each one of those. I thought that's a pretty good article because it kind of puts it in perspective as far as what other people are going to say. And he mentions in there about giving people uh, a, a piece of paper and cutting it into 50 different pieces of, I think it was, or 66 different pieces and how it would all come out and what they would do with it if he told them nothing about it. Um, but it's it interesting because we understand the Bible and we know what it is. Faith is by doing something and immediately setting out to do it without having to see it. Abraham didn't stagger. He didn't wait. He didn't say, let me think about it. Let me consult my wife. You know, did we get an overview? And it just says he went and he did it. And you see that, I think you see that even more specifically when he was told to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Um, that's pretty tough waiting as long as he did for a son of the promise and then God tells him to go sacrifice him um, it seemed to me he didn't even think about it twice he just went to do it his work was in doing the things that were evident of that his trust and his faith in God by doing it over in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 Let's see what faith is and how important it is because it has to do with our salvation as well. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Always remember this scripture because people, people tend to cut it too short and they leave out something very important. Our salvation is by grace. It's not by works, as we're going to see. But they also add something else in there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And here's the part that they leave off. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. See, there's a real controversy when you get into some of these commentaries and they begin to talk about 
Paul doing away with the law and James saying you need to have works and Paul says you, you don't have works, it's by faith. Well, there's a few of them that will begin to say, well, there's, there's not really a contradiction. They're talking about two different things, and they really are because faith and works go together. Now, salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. But you know as well as I do, reward in the book of Revelation is based on works. I'll reward every man according to his works. So it goes hand in hand. Verse 10 here in Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were ordained to, and to do good works and ordained that we should walk in them. doesn't sound to me like we throw it all out and get rid of it. That's part of your faith. Your faith illustrates what you believe by what you do. And Jesus makes such statements, simple statements that are not controversial when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. People forget that. It's not complex. That's not the Apostle Paul. It's very simple. Peter said, Christ set us an example that we should walk in his footsteps. And the Greek word there means like tracing a drawing on a tablet. And that means the exactness of what the image is. And that image is Christ. And we try to walk that and live by that. Over in Hebrews chapter 1, what more could God do? What, what more could he do for people to help people understand who he is? Hebrews 1 verse 1, God who at sundry times and in different manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, and who he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What more could God do? He's spoken. He's performed miracles. He did everything he could possibly do. Then he was silent for about 400 years after the last prophet till he sent us a son. And then his son did what he did, and they killed him. So what more could God do? He could do it all over again. He could bring miracles, pillars of fire, smoke, whatever. But it wouldn't change the people in having lack of faith in him. It would only be evident for a small period of time. They're not going to believe Christ when he returns at his second, second coming, will they? Revelation 11, I think, is verse 18, says the nations were angry at the seventh trump when the seventh angel sounds and Christ returns. They're not going to appreciate it. And I guarantee you they're going to see a lot of miracles, a lot of miracles, and a lot of people are going to die because of it. But they're not going to want to accept him. So what more could God do? Let me read just a couple of sentences here from uh, you need to hear about this. Remember I mentioned something called humanism the other day, what it was, basically was throwing God out. Here's an article that appeared on October the 1st. We, we downloaded it off the Internet. Man's historical claim about Jesus and the Bible would throw Christianity into a tailspin. But is it really true? This man's name 
an article, article published in Free Inquiry, a magazine produced by the Council for Secular Humanism. Writer Michael Polkovich argues that Jesus Christ was a mystical, mystical figure, mythical figure who never walked the earth. And he goes through this over and over and over again. 126 writers during the time of Christ never even mentioned Jesus from the 1st to the 3rd century. Claims that Christians invented Jesus in order to, figure, to have a figure to worship. And it's, it's a very disturbing article, but it, it's typical of what's going around, you know, throwing God out. He says, uh, Christianity, it's outrageous forgeries and it's immoral acts of torture, genocide, and, and other things over the centuries. says the virgin birth tale was a forgery perpetrated 250 years before Jesus, Jesus and even admitted by the Catholic Encyclopedia. He says that um, Jesus, if he was important, would have written something about himself, but he never even wrote anything about himself. Well, that's because he doesn't understand what the Bible says. Jesus had other things to do, and he left that up to other people. He said that, you know, yeah, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the Roman historian who was a Jew, did mention Jesus, but he claims that that was added later in time by somebody else. And he goes on and on to talk about, oh, here, this last paragraph here. As previously ported, reported, um, this self-professed biblical scholar, now that's a problem in itself, but this other gentleman, Joseph Atwill, claims that Christianity was concocted as a government project that was used to control Roman citizens. During the time in which Jesus, in it, during the time in which Jewish residents were waiting for their Messiah, he says there was a constant source of insurrection leading the Romans to seek out an equalizing and tempering force. And so they created Jesus. And it goes on and on. You'll encounter that, people with a lack of faith. They just don't seem to get it. Point number three, how has faith increased? Well, James chapter 1 talks about what we need to do as Christians. And the first thing we do need to do, as it says in James, is ask. James chapter 1 and verse 2, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's not, it's not pleasant when we're tempted and we have problems. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. So patience is a part of faith. We need to depend on God and look totally to Him. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. So ask it with confidence. Ask it because you believe it. You know, he talks about in, over here in verse 22, he says, um, well, in verse 21, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness. So it talks about changing your life and making a course correction along the way. Be you doers of the word, verse 22, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. He says in verse 25, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So faith and works go together. As he says over in the end of chapter 2, in verse 22, he says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. The demons believe also and tremble. 
You know, the devils have faith. The demons have faith because they know that God exists. It's just their faith is worthless because they don't have any good works behind it to corroborate it and to prove it. That's why he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. You know, Abraham was justified, and, and the book of Romans talks about being justified by faith, but he was justified because he believed and because he acted. And that's what we're supposed to do as people. We're supposed to believe and we're supposed to act like we believe, if you will. And not just have the faith of ancient Israel, which God said, children in whom there was no faith because they only believed with what they saw. And if I might be more specific, there's coming a time when we are going to see a whole lot more than this world even dreams about. Because you and I know very well that it is going to happen. Romans chapter 10. See if we can wrap this up in a few minutes. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 really hits the nail on the head how you develop faith and how it's increased. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How blessed we are to have this Bible in front of us. I think of that all the time. I, I can't imagine being Israel with no Old Testament or no New Testament, just listening to the priests, you know, when they had services on the Sabbath. Uh, the priest, you know, explained things to them. Or in the New Testament times where they just had the Old Testament time, Old, Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament scriptures yet. They, they just had the Old Testament. And for the most part, when they went to the synagogue, it was the the priest that brought the scrolls out to read them, they still didn't have access to them. Most of those people couldn't read. But now we have so much available to us, not only the Internet for the good things that are on there, but we, we have the written Word of God before us. And we can, you can download things on commentaries and look at things, look at specifics, look at Greek words, look at Hebrew words to help you understand a little bit more some of the things that the majority of God's people down through the centuries didn't know, didn't have. We are so blessed <clears throat> to have this at our disposal. You know, during World War II, Hitler banned the Bible. Before World War II, I guess. He, he made a mess of, of Germany, as you well know, but banned it. You know, will there come a time when our Bibles will be banned? I don't know. I wonder. When you read Matthew 24 and talks about a time like never before, that mankind has ever experienced, I wonder. I really and truly wonder. Christianity is a lot more than good advice. It tells us what we should do as Christians in having faith, and it tells us and gives us the power to do it. And that is such a blessing for us to understand and to know. You know, what is that power? Well, over in Ephesians chapter 1, you probably know what it is, but it points out specifically in verse 13 of Ephesians 1 what that is. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, 
after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know what that Greek word is for the word sealed? Remember in the movies when you watch the um, movies with kings and knights in them and they wanted to send a message somewhere and they poured that hot red-looking goop on top of a document? They stamped it with their ring to show that it was from the king. That's what it means here when it talks about being sealed. You were stamped and are stamped and you and I both with the king's seal, with God's seal, the king of heaven, the Holy Spirit. Does it not take faith to receive that Holy Spirit? Sure does. Now granted, down through time, I think everybody wonders, you know, I did this, did I really receive God's Spirit? Yeah, you did. One thing about the Holy Spirit, it doesn't force you now, does it? God said through Christ in the book of John, I think it was John 14 and John 16, the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. That takes faith to believe that and to understand that. And you and I have that seal within us that has sealed us and made us what we are, God's elect, which is why Christ will return to this earth before it's all destroyed. And why you and I have a place waiting for us in God's kingdom because we've been set apart by that. That's the key. Faith is complete dependence on God with full obedience. You know, Jesus talked a lot about in, in different times through the New Testament in his talks how difficult it would be to get into the kingdom and that you had to do certain things. You know, did you, did you remember what he said to the, to the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said what you had to be like to enter the kingdom of heaven? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they were some pretty good people in keeping the law, weren't they? They really were. I mean, they were very specific. They, the problem was they put more faith in the law than in Christ. But Christ said, you have to exceed their righteousness to enter into the kingdom. People miss all this stuff, and it's, it's too simple. It's too obvious. But it's because they really don't have the faith and want to believe in it, and so they'll tell you, well, you're crazy for doing all this stuff. Going to the feast, going and keeping the Sabbath day, changing your life and turning it around. We live in modern times. We're progressive. We're liberated. We need to do whatever we feel we want to do. Sorry, that just doesn't work. It doesn't happen that way. Our righteous, righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the things I saw when I was in Israel, and I had never understood this, Jesus said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I never could figure that out. I, I never... I've got books on the culture of the time and everything, but it never explained the eye of the needle. And we went by bus. We went north to south. We went from Caesarea Philippi, which is clear up in the north of Israel, clear down on top of Masada, even down to the bottom of the Dead Sea. We were within a half a mile of Syria when uh, two and a half years ago when they were just starting this battle that they were in. We, we covered the whole country, but we went to Bethlehem to a little village. It was about two or three acres and it was constructed right there in the center of town to look just like it was during the time of Christ. Buildings, 
the food and everything, we spent a couple hours there doing that. But they had in this building what the eye of the needle was. And it was so fascinating. Now, when you think it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, what do you think of? Sharp little metal instrument, that little needle that every now and then I'll sew something up and it's all I can do to get that needle through there anymore. I almost need a magnifying glass. That seems impossible, doesn't it? The eye of the needle is not impossible, but it's very small. See those doors over there? We come into the auditorium, there's two doors there. Most of these homes at that time had doors like that. The eye of the needle was about half the size of that one door. They actually had the two doors that came together, and then in the middle of one of the doors, they had another small door that probably, probably was about the size of this lectern, if you could put the front of that on the side of the door. That was another door. That was called the eye of the needle. And what that meant was when you went through it, you didn't have a lot that you could take through with you. If you're as big as I am, good luck. It's about all you're going to do to get through it. But it was encouraging because when you think of that eye of the needle and putting a thread through it or a camel, which is impossible, you think, there's no way I'm going to make it. But when you look at what it really meant, you can say, yeah, we can make it, but we're going to have to work and do our part to get through it. And that's what was so encouraging because it brought a whole new light to that scripture about the eye of the needle. In conclusion, we need to live the life that we live and we need to understand where we're headed. I have two scriptures here. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. I'll just read it to you very quickly. Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, these witnesses that testify to the faith that they had and that you and I follow because we know they were true witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Yeah, he, he starts the faith within us because he calls us and he's going to see to us that that faith is finished within us. So don't, don't doubt. Doubt yourself because we're human, but don't doubt what Christ said he will do with you and for you and through you because he'll see that he gets you there. And I'm just going to quote the last one. It's one I try to live by every day. Paul wrote it, the book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. A lot of times we may not know how we're going to do it. We may not know when we're going to be able to do it. But all we have to know is that Christ said that we can do all things through him. And all we have to do is believe it and have faith. So what is faith? It's a pillar of Christianity. It's something that we have to have because without faith it's impossible to please our Creator. It's the first step in turning to God and it plays a big part in our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of the works. May God strengthen your faith over the coming year. 
and may we always look to him. Thank you for your friendship and your kindness. I have certainly enjoyed it here. I hope I've been a help, and I look forward to seeing all of you again. Some of you I've met for the first time. You've got a wonderful feast site here. You've got a wonderful group of people, and you certainly have God's spirit, a wonderful spirit. Thank you very much.